0: Well, good morning, and welcome to another episode of the North Carolina Study Center podcast. My name is Matt Hain, and I serve on staff with the Study Center. And we're in the midst of a series right now on C.S. Lewis's 1943 book, *The Abolition of Man*. Now, as I record this, uh, we're currently in month four of the COVID-19 pandemic in America. We're in the month of June, and during this season, I'm sure like you. Uh, I've been deeply saddened to see so many businesses and beloved institutions, namely uh, universities like UNC, and visitor attractions that have all had to close down for a time. In a bit of encouraging news, however, I've been reading recently about one institution that has been rebounding, making a comeback uh, quite strongly over the past month, and that is America's National Parks. Here are a few headlines I've come across uh, from the past month. May 29th, this is from National Geographic. Headline reads, Summer at America's National Parks kicks off with long lines and crowded trails. There's this one from June 24th uh, from an East Tennessee local news source. Despite no campgrounds, no visitor centers, and not opening until May 9th, recreational visitation to the Smokies was fast and furious in the month of May. Or this one from June 12th. This is from Spectrum News. Reopen Zion... Uh, National Park's scenic drive is closing early, like 6 a.m. early, due to traffic. Amazing to to think you have to get there by 6 a.m. just to get in the park because so many people are trying to do so. Well, after being cooped up in our home for months on end, it appears that the urge to spend time outdoors is stronger than ever this summer. And speaking personally, one of the things I've always loved about the national parks is that for many of us, um, experiencing them... It jolts us out of our mundane day-to-day grind. Uh, It cuts against the rudimentary, reductive ways we tend to interact with the world around us. And instead, it inspires awe and wonder in us. The national parks have a unique capacity to do this. When approached with the proper lens, one that views the wonders of the national parks not merely as nature, but rather as creation, The national parks can direct our gaze beyond just the beautiful scenery they hold, and they can drive us to worship the creator who made these amazing sights. Beholding El Capitan from its base in Yosemite, or taking time to observe a moose up close while hiking the Teton Crest Trail, uh, these things can and should lead us to revel in the awesomeness and the creativity of our God. Well, according to scripture, it's not only creation that leads us to worship the living God. uh, Actually, creation itself also participates alongside of us in worshiping God. Consider these verses. uh, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The skies proclaim. The skies are preaching to us about who God is, according to the psalmist in Psalm 19. Or take Isaiah 55. For you, Israel, shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I love this image. Creation itself is breaking forth in rhythm and rhyme and song uh, at the work that God is doing. Creation itself is worshiping. Or take Psalm 148, finally. Praise the Lord. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Praise the Lord. It doesn't get any more clear than this, does it? Praise and worship is not just simply for human beings. Rather, praise and worship are an activity that all of creation participates in. Well, In the storyline of Scripture, all of creation, uh, to give the big picture here, all of creation comes forth originally from God's own word. God's speech is what brings forth creation. It's created by God to be under the dominion of mankind, and we human beings are given the task by God of stewarding creation. We name it, Adam names it, we tend to it, we bring out its fruitfulness and other potentialities. And although creation does suffer from the human fall, uh, God does not abandon creation. Creation groans for its renewal, as Romans tells us. Uh, It groans for Christ's return and for the new heavens and the new earth, the remaking of creation, which will then last for eternity. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, Creation is not incidental or tangential to God's purposes. God loves and deeply cares for all of the things that he has made. Well, C.S. Lewis's mind was deeply shaped by this holistic biblical portrait of creation. Uh, This was the, the, the mindset he had when thinking about creation. And because of this, he was very concerned at the time he wrote Abolition of Man by a rival approach to the things of creation, And that rival approach that alarmed him so much, we can describe as reductive materialism. Lewis defines reductive materialism as the effort to reduce all objects to mere nature. Emphasis on the word mere there. Objects are to be understood and appreciated only insofar as they can be manipulated by us human beings to serve our purposes. In Lewis's view, this was dangerously undermining uh, our capacity for awe for reverence and for a holistic appreciation for the things of God's creation, I'd like to read a little bit of an extended quote from Abolition of Man, so bear with me here. Lewis writes, "Nature, according to a reductive materialism, seems to the world seems to be the world of quantity as against the world of quality, of objects as against consciousness or perceiving the reality of things." of that which knows no values as against that which both has and perceives values, of efficient efficient causes or of no causation at all as against final causes. When we understand a thing analytically and then dominate it and use it for our own convenience, we reduce it to the level of nature in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it, ignoring its final cause, and treat it in terms of quantity. To do this involves repressing what would otherwise be our total reaction to any given aspect of creation. These objects, they resist the movement of the mind whereby we thrust or reduce them into the world of mere nature. A price is exacted for our analytical knowledge and manipulative power. Something of an object's reality has been lost. We reduce things to mere nature in order that we may conquer them. End quote. Now, if I lost you with that, I realize it's a long quote. So if I lost you uh, with that, let me catch you here. What Lewis is saying here is, uh, take, for example, stars. Uh, The stars led all traditional cultures to awe and wonder. Uh, But we, however, today, we assign them to the realm of mere nature. They're merely uh, material entities that can be reductively explained by science. So we no longer wonder at the mysterious grandeur of Hedra. We explain constellations away as human constructs for describing uh, naturally occurring balls of gas and fire billions of miles away. We reduce the stars to this, and we think that we've captured uh, their essence by describing them in only a scientific manner. Or trees. Lewis uses the example of trees. Trees cease to be dryads or beautiful objects, as in traditional literature. Think Lord of the Rings and the Ents here. Uh, they are reduced to mere nature. Rather than wondering at trees, we view them merely as lumber waiting to be cut down. Now, before you dismiss Lewis as a ludite and accuse him of being anti science, let me acknowledge here that Lewis does believe that the scientific method has brought about many gains. Some things have definitely been gained, but some things have also been lost. Uh, As the scientific method has been philosophically appropriated for reductive purposes, losses include awe and wonder, uh, the perception of creation's fullest reality, being able to see it from a biblical lens. But other things have been gained in this trade-off. Modern science and medicine, uh, household appliances, the convenience of the car over the horse and buggy. Lewis writes that as long as this process stops short of the final stage, we may well hold that the gain outweighs the loss in this trade-off. It is this final stage that Lewis feared so greatly. This is the focus of the entire book, Abolition of Man. Well, What is this final stage that Lewis feared? Lewis has already clued us in in the book's title. The final stage that he fears so much is the abolition of man. Lewis was concerned in his day that reductive materialism was not only transforming the way we view trees and stars, But more alarmingly, it was transforming the way we view fellow human beings. Taken to its logical end, reductive materialism dictates that we view fellow human beings not as God's creatures created in his image and designed with an end in, in life, an ultimate aim or purpose, but as mere bundles of flesh and cells that can therefore be manipulated by one another. Lewis writes, this is a shorter quote, As soon as we take the final step of reducing our own species species to the level of mere nature, the whole process is stultified. For this time, the being who stood to gain and the being who has been sacrificed are one and the same. It is in man's power to treat himself as a mere natural object and his own sense of morality as raw material for scientific manipulation to alter at will. If a man chooses to treat himself as raw material, raw material he will be. Lewis saw so clearly that to reduce the essence of being human to raw material will lead to the book's title. It will lead to the abolition or the abolishing of man. To disregard the inherent dignity and worth of each human being, to deny the inviolability of the human being as an image bearer of God, and to view human nature and morality as raw material to be experimented upon, this is not liberating, it is dehumanizing, according to Lewis. Well, in closing today, uh, just a brief application, and then we'll wrap up. I encourage you to ask yourself, how justified in your perspective was Lewis's fear, considering the course of the past 75 years since he wrote Abolition of Man? What is the status of the human being today in our cultural conscience? How are we doing as a society in limiting the extent of our application of reductive materialism so that it stops short of swallowing up the human person alongside trees and stars? Now, whatever your perspective is in response to this question, uh, whatever degree of alarm or lack thereof you may have, I would like to say in terms of application that it is crucial that Christians especially, for those of you who are listening who are Christians, it is crucial that we are at the forefront of defending human dignity and the sanctity of life holistically from womb to tomb. Fighting the reductive materialism that Lewis feared uh, means passionately defending the inherent dignity and An image-bearing status of each and every human being. Human personhood is not, it is not raw material to be manipulated by anyone for any reason. Rather, to be a human person, uh, to exist, to have creation, to be created. This is a gift to be received from our good creator God. Christians should be at the forefront of proclaiming this truth and defending it in our society and culture. I hope this has given you something to think about today um, and reflect on. I hope you're enjoying reading Abolition of Man, those of you who are reading alongside of us. And we'll be back uh, the next two days, uh, Thursday and Friday, to wrap up this podcast series. Thanks for listening, and until next time.